0: Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. While a great deal of excitement surrounds recent clinical trials evaluating systemic therapy of breast cancer, there have also been a plethora of advances in local management of the disease and the use of innovative technologies. I met with Dr. Rach Simmons for an update on new developments in this arena, and she began her conversation by commenting on minimally invasive surgery.
1: One of the areas that I think is particularly exciting is looking at alternatives to surgical lumpectomy, and some of those may be percutaneous excision. There are several devices out there in the market currently that do a pretty good job of excising lesions. And certainly at this point, they're only approved to excise benign lesions. But it wouldn't surprise me if in the future we're seeing these technologies used to treat breast cancer, to excise breast cancer as an alternative to a surgical lumpectomy. Also, one of my particular areas of interest in research is looking at ablation therapy. And ablation therapy is not really a new technology. It's been around for decades, being used primarily to treat metastatic hepatic tumors. So many surgical oncologists are familiar with the technology. And now what's happening is this technology is being evaluated as a treatment for multiple types of primary cancers. We're looking at brain tumors and lung cancers and kidney cancers. And of course, our interest is looking at it in the treatment of a primary breast cancer. There are several technologies that are currently available that are ablation therapies that are being evaluated in the treatment of a primary breast cancer. There's laser ablation, there is RF, radio frequency ablation, cryoablation. There are two other modalities that are being evaluated that are focused ultrasound and microwave, and those two really have very, very limited data. But looking at the other technologies, the two heat technologies, laser and RF, are being shown to be pretty good at killing cancer. What I find most interesting, though, is cryoablation. And there are very good data looking at cryoablation in the treatment of fibroadenomas. We started using this years ago and have accumulated enough data so that it's actually now FDA-approved to treat fibroadenomas without resection. And what we found is that these tumors essentially absorb over the course of a year, so that a year out from the ablation, ninety-five percent of them have completely gone away. And that's going away both by physical examination that they were palpable initially, and also by ultrasound and by mammography. So they really are just being absorbed and then completely disappearing. We're now applying that technology for breast cancers. And there's currently one good pilot study in the literature where we took twenty seven breast cancer patients that were all T1 invasive breast cancers. We did cryoablation, and then we did a resection on all of those patients. And what we found was if you limited the patients to purely invasive ductal, without EIC, less than 1.5 centimeters, that we had 100% complete ablation on those patients.
0: How long after the ablation was the surgery done?
1: It can be anywhere from six days onward. And you know certainly when you're dealing with breast cancer patients, you're not going to wait a long time because they want to have their resections until node biopsy and get on with their other therapy. The unique thing about the cryoablation is that you cannot resect it right away as far as being able to see a histological change. With the heat technologies, you can. You can do it in the operating room and then resect them. And we did that on a previous study where we looked at RF. It was a tri-institutional study with John Wayne, MD Anderson, and ourselves at Cornell. But with the cryo, you have to wait six days to see the histological changes. And what you see when you do resect these tumors is essentially just a hyalinized necrotic area. And that shows the complete ablation of these tumors.
0: I would assume the major reason to do this is cosmesis?
1: It is. It's cosmetic, and it also, of course, would avoid an incision and avoid going to the operating room for these patients. The thing that we found in the fibroadenoma data that we thought was important was finding out what happens when you follow these patients mammographically because our concern would be that if we get to a point where we're not resecting these tumors, you don't really want to see a lot of fat necrosis and calcifications and scarring and distortion mammographically because it may make it very confusing to follow these patients. Now, of course, in the patients that had fibroadenomas, most of them were not in the age group to be getting annual screening mammograms, but some of them were. And we found that they just completely, essentially disappeared on mammography. So we're seeing less distortion on the mammograms on these patients that had cryoablation than one that would have had a surgical resection of a fibroadenoma. There is a trial that is an ACOSOG trial that should be launching. This is a phase 2 trial, multi-institutional where we're taking 200 patients that have invasive ductal carcinoma, no EIC, less than 1.5 centimeter, using, of course, the data that we found from the pilot trial to optimize the success of this trial. Those patients are going to have cryoablation followed by surgical resection and standard of care, whether it be radiation therapy, central no-biopsy, chemotherapy, whatever is appropriate for these patients. Now, in addition to that, what we're also going to be doing is doing a pre-ablation MR and a post-ablation MR. There are data from a study that Bill Burak did a few years ago, published in Cancer, where he did the same pre- and post-MR with RF technology. And what he showed was a very high predictability. if the pre- MR shows enhancement and the post-ablation MR does not, that indeed you completely destroyed the cancer. So we're going to be applying that to this trial. We also are going to be in the operating room at the time of the resection doing core biopsies around the ablation zone. Now, the goal of this trial really is twofold. Number one, to show a highly effective treatment for small breast cancer, showing very good success at destroying the cancer. But number two, and perhaps even more important, we want to show that we have a very high negative predictive value with the combination of the MR and the core biopsy. Because we need to know when we missed. If the ablation rate is 70%, 80%, 90%, whatever we end up finding, and it probably is going to be very high in the selected group of patients, the most important thing is to know when we didn't get all the cancer. Because until we can do that, we cannot go on to the next step, which would be a non-resection trial. And that, of course, is where we're all going with this. The only advantage of being able to do ablation would be if we could avoid surgical resection in the future. And at this point, the data are not strong enough to take that step. So, what we're hoping is that this trial, this ACASAG trial, will be able to give us the information as a foundation to be able to then do either a very large phase two or a phase three study where patients would have non resection, either non resection followed compared to historical controls, or patients that would have a phase three randomized trial where their patients would be randomized to a standard surgical resection, lumpectomy, versus having cryoablation without resection.
0: What about partial breast irradiation? Can that be done in this situation?
1: It could be. The question is if that would be any conflict. You know, Certainly if the patient's on another trial, B39 or some other radiation trial, that might be a conflict for that trial. It wouldn't be so much for our trial. We're resecting as you would normally. So I don't think from our perspective in ACASOG it'd be a conflict, but it may be from the NSABP for the B39 or some of the other trials.
0: What about looking down the line in terms of if you can get away without resection, would you be able to do partial breast radiation?
1: Well, you potentially could. Now, if you haven't got a cavity, it might be a different technology that you'd be using. But as I'm sure you're aware, there are some technologies out there that don't use balloon and wouldn't require a cavity. Now, what I think is really fascinating to think about, and this is really pushing the envelope, but if we're able to do partial breast radiation and radiate a sonometer beyond the cavity that we've surgically resected, it seems pretty logical that you might be able to just ablate a sonometer beyond the cancer as well, and that might work just as well. Now, I have no data to support that. I'm just thinking hypothetically, but it's an interesting concept to think about.
0: What have you observed in terms of the cosmetic effects of this, or have you had patients who just have the ablation without the surgery?
1: We haven't done that for cancers. We have done that for fibroadenomas. And what's interesting is, of course, the first couple days after the procedure, they're echomotic, they're swollen. And if you have a patient who can feel her fibroadenoma, she'll probably feel it more after she has the cryoablation because the whole area swells. But then what begins to happen is the tumor begins to absorb. And generally three to six months after the ablation, you can't feel it anymore. And then generally six months to 12 months afterwards, as I said earlier, it goes away from an imaging standpoint as well.
0: Does it appear to be significantly improved cosmesis compared to excision?
1: Well, you know, I think certainly in the application for fibrinomas, it often is because You typically may have a patient who comes in who's a young woman, and she may have multiple fibroadenomas. And especially if she can feel the tumor, they often don't like having it there. So even though you could offer her the option of having a core biopsy and observation, that may not be palatable to her. She may prefer to have it go away. And then you're left with two options, either ablating it or surgically excising it. And when you surgically excise it, you're going to have an incision. Now, that may be cosmetic. It may not be, depending upon how large a is and depending upon where it's located in the breast and she may have multiple ones of them so you may then end up going down the road of doing multiple surgical incisions for these patients which may not be cosmetically advantageous and in that situation I think doing cryoblation would be better for the patient.
0: How many patients have you done this procedure on for fibroadenoma or benign lesions?
1: For fibroadenoma somewhere around 12-15 somewhere in that range.
0: So where do you see this all heading?
1: You know, I think it's very exciting, and I think it's one of the possibilities of how we're not going to be doing surgical resections in the future. And I think that certainly as we go towards less and less invasive technologies, this may be in our mentarium as far as what we're able to offer patients five to ten years from now.
0: We were talking just now about partial breast radiation. What's your take on the NSAVP RTOG study looking at that?
1: Well, I certainly think that partial radiation, it makes sense, I mean, as far as the way we're treating our patients. And going down the road with our patients, again, towards less and less invasive technology, I think that partial breast makes sense as far as most recurrences are within the same area of the breast where the cancer is. And radiating normal tissue is really no different than radiating the opposite breast. So I certainly agree that the technologies make sense, and we need more data. We need more data going forward as far as the follow-up on these patients.
0: Are you doing PBI at your institution?
1: We are. We're using it predominantly with the site. And I do like the mammocyte. I think that technically it's very easy to put in. We're getting very good cosmetic results on our patients. The patients are delighted with the idea of, number one, having a five-day radiation course versus having a 30-day radiation course. And we've also gotten very good results from the patients as far as the cosmetic result afterwards. And they also, they like the fact that we're treating just the area of the breast that has the problem. And of course, theoretically, 10 years from now, if these patients have a recurrence somewhere else in the breast, we might be able to conserve the breast again through re-breast lumpectomy and re-breast partial radiation therapy instead of every single patient being obligated to have a mastectomy.
0: Let's chat about some other evolving areas. Any thoughts on sentinel node?
1: Well, we're using sentinel node pretty universally in any patient that has invasive breast cancer and even on some patients that have high-grade DCIS or any patient who's having a mastectomy for DCIS. And I think it's really been a wonderful new technology to be able to offer to our patients that gives us fabulous information with less morbidity to our patients. And as far as the false negative rate of 10%, that seems a little bit high because of the other information that we're getting from other multiple studies like Kelly McMaster's study that was a institutional study where we're having generally around 5% false negative rates. And I think that there certainly are groups of patients where we thought it might not be applicable, but it probably really is, such as large breast cancers. You know, certainly years ago, we said it didn't work for large breast cancers, but the newer data is showing that it does. So I think certainly in a T3 breast cancer, it makes sense to give the patient the benefit of the doubt and go ahead and do a central node biopsy. However, I would say the caveat is that certainly in those larger breast cancer patients, you are more likely to find a situation where you've got a node or two that are completely replaced by cancer and therefore don't turn blue and are not hot. So in those patients in particular, it's really important as a surgeon to make sure there aren't any other palpable nodes in the axilla and if there are, of course, to biopsy those as well. The issue of whether or not it's appropriate in neoadjuvant patients, I think, is fairly controversial, although the data is certainly implying now, particularly from the group at Anderson and a study that was just published on the group at Michigan, that it does work very well and that the sensitivity and being able to find a central node is somewhere in the 95, 97 percentile range, and the false negative rate is somewhere in the 5 percent range, which is what we're finding with other cancers. You know, I think the thing with central node and neoadjuvant boils down to what are you trying to prove? If your question is about staging, then it's important to do your central node prior to neoadjuvant because you want to know if those nodes are positive or not prior to your neoadjuvant because about 25 or 30% of those patients that are positive initially will become negative with neoadjuvant. If it's a matter of trying to save the patient a full node dissection, then I think it's more important to do it afterwards, because 25% of those patients may have nodes that are negative, and you could spare them a full node dissection. And I think that the data are reasonable at this point to believe that it works in the setting if you do it well. Are there any
0: situations where you get a positive sentinel node and don't do an axillary dissection?
1: occasionally, but I think it's important, of course, to look at multiple factors from that standpoint and also talk to your patients. Certainly, I think it's important to look at the size of your primary tumor, and how positive is your positive node. Is it IHC alone? Is it a micromet or is it a macromet? Certainly if it's a macromet, the data suggests that there's a pretty good chance of having additional non sentinel positive nodes in that patient, it probably is worth going back and doing a full node dissection. If you've got a micromet, especially in a small T1A, T1B tumor, then it's pretty unlikely you're going to have additional non nodes that are positive. There's a wonderful nomogram that Kim Van Zee developed at Memorial that takes multiple factors into account and allows you to make a pretty accurate prediction how likely is it that you're going to have in this particular patient additional non-central nodes that are positive. And let's say you find out that it's a 5% chance. I think it's important then to talk to your patients and explain to them that that 5% chance exists. And I find that when I do that, probably half the patients absolutely want me to go back and do a full node dissection because they don't want there to be any chance of leaving cancer behind the other half of the patients say, I absolutely do not want you to go back and do a full node dissection because for a 5% chance, I don't want to risk the morbidity of lymphedema and other problems from having the node dissection. And a lot of them are going to get chemotherapy anyway. And if that's a situation, then I think it may very well not be of a benefit to the patient to go back and do a full node dissection.
0: What are some of the other areas of emerging clinical research information that you think are important for surgeons to know in practice?
1: One of the things we've been talking about a lot at meetings lately is for that subset of patients, unfortunately it's a small subset that require a mastectomy and not a lumpectomy, what can we do to maximize the cosmetic result for the patients from an oncologically safe perspective? And of course, skin sparing has been around for a decade at this point, and there are multiple studies in the literature showing that skin sparing is oncologically as safe as a non-skin sparing mastectomy in patients that would be essentially anybody short of an inflammatory cancer. Certainly we get a better cosmetic result for those patients. And as I explain when I often give lectures about this, when I used to talk about skin sparing to my patients, they used to always ask, well, why do you have to take the nipple and the areola?" And really, the only data that I could give them was old data that looked at the nipple areola complex. And if you didn't take the nipple areola complex, then you had a higher chance of having a recurrence in the future. But I began thinking about that. And of course, the nipple and the areola are really very different. The nipple is the convergence of all that ductal tissue from the breast. And the areola is really just a different color of skin that doesn't have ductal glands within it. So I did a study that was published in Analysis for Drunk a few years ago where I looked at over 200 patients that had mastectomies and looked at how often is the nipple involved and how often is the areola involved. And what I found actually isn't really surprising. What I found is the nipples involved pretty often. And even patients that have DCIS have involvement of the nipple with cancer cells. But the areola is almost never involved. It makes sense. it's just really just skim. And... What we found was less than 1% of those patients actually had areola involvement, and it was only patients that had very large invasive breast cancers located right behind the areola. So they weren't spreading to the areola; they were growing into the areola. So I've actually modified my skin-sparing mastectomy to be, for many patients, an areola-sparing mastectomy. So I generally make a decision that is around the nipple, keeping the nipple in contact, on block with the underlying breast tissue, and then make a decision either just through the areola, if it's a generous-sized areola, or through the areola with a little bit of a lateral extension to it to be able to do the dissection and do whatever needs to be done in the axilla, as well as get the breast out of that shell of skin. So I think that's a very reasonable alternative for patients, for many patients that have breast cancer. Now, some people are also looking at the option of nipple sparing, and I don't favor that for the data that I just mentioned, that fairly significantly there are patients that have nipple involvement when they have breast cancer. If you also look at the data being presented on nipple sparing, the follow-up is very short in these patients, and even looking at Veronese's data, what you're seeing is if you radiate the nipple, you're getting about a 10% nipple necrosis. And I just can't see a lot of advantage of saving the nipple and in 10% of your patient gain necrosis when you could just take the nipple, save the areola, and then do a reconstruction of the nipple if the patient desires to have that done. But honestly, I find that most patients, if you save their areola, they don't really care about the nipple. And if you did save a nipple, it's insensate, it's not erectile, it really is not a very functional nipple for the patient.
0: What's your take as a surgeon on the new developments that have been occurring in adjuvant systemic therapy, particularly the rapidly emerging role of AIs in postmenopausal women?
1: Certainly the trend has been in all breast cancer hormonal treatments that we start out looking at it in the metastatic setting initially, then the adjuvant setting for invasive cancers. Then we often go to the in situ setting, and then we go to the chemo prevention setting. So that would actually be right on course with the AIs. The AIs have shown to work well metastatic, well in the adjuvant, and certainly now we're looking at that as far as the B35 trial with the DCIS, and I expect it's probably going to work as well, if not better than tamoxifen. And the next step logically would be to look at it In the prevention setting.
0: What's your take on the safety and tolerability of AIs versus tamoxifen?
1: Yeah, certainly as far as the menopausal symptoms, and they're about the same as tamoxifen. I haven't seen a big difference in patients, although ironically, if a patient does not well on one, they might do well on the other for some unknown reason. But as far as the advantage of preventing osteoporosis with tamoxifen, we don't see that with the AIs. So if a patient is at risk for osteoporosis, she would need to take another type of medication, which could certainly be Fosamax, something non-hormonal that she would be able to take. Generally, I find the patients do pretty well with the AIs, and the data implies they may be as good or even a little bit better than tamoxifen.
0: In the past, breast cancer surgeons have prescribed tamoxifen in a number of situations themselves. Is that happening with AIs, and do you think it will happen?
1: Oh, I think it definitely will happen. And as you may know, there's a trial currently, an ACOSOG trial, the 1031, where we're taking patients and looking at three different hormonal agents, three different AIs neoadjuvant setting, the patient's being randomized to one of the threes. It's for postmenopausal ER-positive patients in a neoadjuvant setting. And of course, this lends itself very well for surgeons giving these medications because you're the ones that see the patients initially. I think that certainly it makes sense that in the future, surgeons probably will be given these medications and they may be much more common and much more of the bulk of what we're treating our patients with versus chemotherapy.
0: Another development that's been kind of interesting, being part of the NSABP, you've seen that evolve, which is looking at the Oncotype DX assay. Can you summarize what your take is from those data and how it enters into your clinical decision-making?
1: I think it's very exciting data, and I think certainly this sort of technology, whether it's this particular company or other companies that are out there, I think that it's going to be part of how we treat breast cancer patients in the future, because there is the potential of so much information that we can get from a core biopsy on these patients. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if 10 years from now we do a core biopsy on our patients as they present with their breast cancer. We get a multitude of information from them as far as number one, likelihood of having lymph node involvement or systemic disease. So that may eliminate the need for doing central node biopsies or node dissections or even systemic workups in these patients. It will also give us information regarding what chemotherapies are appropriate in our patients. We then will be able to give give them neoadjuvant chemotherapy, shrink these tumors down, maybe not doing anything on these patients as far as a procedure in the breast if we can make the cancer go away completely with neoadjuvant. I think it's going to be a completely different world 10 years from now than it is right now, and I think very little of it, in all honesty, is going to be surgical.
0: Have you actually utilized the Oncotype DX assay in your practice?
1: We've used it for some patients. There certainly are limitations as far as all the patients that where it applies and if it's helpful. But we have used it in some patients, and it has helped our medical oncologists make decisions about chemotherapy for those patients.